As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to episode 564 with my guest, Rosebud Baker. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit, all the bullshit rattling around our heads, past, present, mental, emotional, you name it. I'm not a therapist. You have been warned. Uh, I just came from my support group meeting, one of my support group meetings, and the topic was honesty. And I don't know if there are any topics as important as honesty, any principles in our lives as important as honesty, and yet almost nothing is terrifying as being transparent, being totally honest. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but my struggle isn't being honest with other people. (laughs) My struggle is being honest with myself, not deluding myself. And you know, I had to I had to finally this is so hard to say out loud, but I had to finally say, you know what, I can't watch the occasional porn because I don't like how it changes how I view the world. And it's not like I'm not somebody that thinks all porno- pornography is terrible and you're ruining the the world if you watch it. I think some pornography is is terrible and is harmful, but um, I had to get honest with myself that you know what I don't like. I don't like how it makes me feel afterwards. It's kind of embarrassing that it took me so long to 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 really get honest with myself about that. And who knows? Maybe I'm just temporarily getting honest with myself. But you know the the. The part about dishonesty, you know, in the short run, it feels like it feels like a win because you know maybe we're avoiding pain, you know, we're avoiding hearing something somebody has to say, taking a look at ourselves, doing something that's inconvenient. But dishonesty requires maintenance. You know, you put that shit out there. You got to keep tabs on it. That's fucking exhausting. In my experience, trying to live honestly, walking through the fear of being honest and, and vulnerable, 
is I get a sense that I'm working with the universe, that the universe wants me to become the most, most authentic version of me that I can be. And I find that when I'm honest, that happens. And sometimes it's terrifying saying, you know, you hurt my feelings or I can't have a relationship with you because it's unhealthy for me. You know, those moments have changed my life for the better because I've learned to take care of myself. To tell on myself, you know, being honest in that way. As painful as that can be in the short run, it there's a freedom in saying how things really are instead of just trying to plug all the holes in the ship. It's fucking exhausting. It's exhausting. And I know so many people who won't fully share with their therapist what's really going on with them because of various reasons. Maybe they... They're afraid of being judged or they don't want to be given, you know, an opinion or advice or whatever it is that they think is, is going to happen, but it stands in the way of them growing into the person that they, that they really want to be. I don't think a, a, a decent life can be had without having a bedrock of, of honesty. I just don't. So anyway... That's my little spiel on that. I want to, normally I don't read the shame and secrets surveys until after the interview, but I wanted to read this one. Um, this is filled out by Kiki ATX, and she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I would say it does. Uh, she writes, I got blackout drunk one time in college and woke up to my male friend in the bed next to me touching me. He insisted that nothing happened. I felt weird. I don't know if we had sex or if anything else happened. I lost a couple of hours of time completely and I feel like something may have happened. Well, I don't know. You didn't, when you said uh, next to me touching me, I'm not sure in what kind of touching you meant. If you mean sexual touching, then something absolutely happened to you and you don't need to remember anything else. Uh, I lost a couple of hours of time completely and I feel like something may have happened. I think my drink may have been drugged because I only remember drinking one drink. I think back on this time a lot and try to remember, but it's not there. If a tree falls in the woods, dot, 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 is it rape if you don't remember it? She writes that she's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused. Um, I grew up with a mother who was kind of fixated on my weight. She signed me up for Weight Watchers when I was 11. I was a tall girl and not skinny, but not fat. I grew up hating myself and being obsessed with food and my weight. I also find obese people disgusting. I'm currently 60 pounds overweight and I feel disgusting and can't look at other people like me without judging them. I was raised to think that if I wasn't thin, then there was something seriously wrong with me. I can't even talk to therapists about how much I hate my body. I hate myself so much that I'm shocked that I have a husband that loves me and friends and a good job. I don't feel like I'm worthy of any of these things because I'm fat. 
And I know this is because no matter how smart or popular or good I was, my weight was my mother's most important concern. Any positive experiences with abusers? I love my mother. Other than the weight thing, we had a good relationship. She was one of the people I was closest to, and my childhood was good in many ways. I don't think she had any idea how much her weight fixation affected me, and I think if she did, she would have tried to stop. Darkest thoughts. I wish my mother would die. She has severe dementia and is no longer the person she used to be. She's the equivalent of a three-year-old. It kills me to see her this way and to see my father struggle to take care of her. I feel like I've grieved her like she's died and now she's this person I have to babysit and shower and it's not her. She gets worse as time goes on and I wish she would just die in her sleep. I feel so awful, but I wish for this a lot. Darkest Secrets. Before we got married, I cheated on my then boyfriend. I cheated on him multiple times because I used to have sex with men just to get over hating my body so much. I haven't cheated on him since we've been married. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm on antidepressants and mood stabilizers, so I have no libido. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mother that her obsessions with my weight hurt me so much, but that I still love her and I forgive her. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I was a thin, healthy person. I wish my mother didn't have dementia. Have you shared these things with others? I tell my husband some of these things, but it's hard and I don't want to burden him. I try to avoid the weight topic because I cringe when he tells me, I think you're beautiful. I haven't been able to tell a therapist because I just feel disgusting. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm crying, but it feels good to tell the truth. Speaking of honesty. Honesty does feel good. It does feel good. And sometimes it, it can feel super fucking complicated, just like, just like life. But thank you for that survey. That was really, really deep and vulnerable, and I appreciate it. This is just uh, a couple of people's responses to uh, the back-in-time survey question. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? And one person writes, I grew up in a place with a lot of chimneys. My favorite time of day now is just after dark when the temperature is low and all I can smell through the open window is chimney smoke. It reminds me of home when I've been away for so long. I love that smell. It is so great. Another person writes, When I received texts from my friends wishing me to get well soon, I did just get the flu, but it made me feel that my friends are thinking of me. That is such a, that is such a great feeling, feeling thought of. Being reminded that you're a person that other people see and value. It sounds so ridiculously basic but uh, another person writes i hugged my dog he's a bit overweight because of health issues and he's a siberian husky he felt fluffy and damp he licked my face he smelled like wet from the rain he was wagging his tail he brought me a ball and bowed playfully asking me to throw it we played fetch in the living room and when he got tired he sat on my feet and asked for some more pets I gave him more hugs and pets and told him he was a very good boy. 
Another person writes, I walked outside for a bit while the sky was overcast today. It was 61 degrees and I was able to wear my fall clothes, which I love to wear. I had on my favorite fall coat that a family member gifted me. I felt warm and stylish for once. I could smell the leaves as they began to die for the season. I could feel the cool breeze while I walked. I thought I was so lucky to be alive, to have this walk, to have the life I have, and to have this time to myself. Those are awesome. We are sponsored this week, as always, by the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. Uh, I am, as I mention every week, a big fan of of theirs. Um, been using them for three years, and uh, I love doing it from the comfort of my own home. I love knowing that they vet their therapists, uh, that their therapists are licensed in uh all 50 states, well, I mean, each therapist isn't licensed in all 50 states, but um, whatever state you're in, they will connect you with a therapist who is licensed in that state. And no matter what state you're in, there is a, uh, a therapist most likely that uh, is a good fit for you. And it may not happen on the first time. Sometimes uh, you don't click with the therapist or you're looking for something different that's maybe not in their wheelhouse, but... Um, yeah, just go to uh, betterhelp.com slash metal. Make sure you include the slash metal part so that they know you came from the podcast. And then fill out a questionnaire. And if they feel that they have a counselor that is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one and you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. And you need to be uh, 18 or over. If you're not, they'll send you to uh, teencounseling.com. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have... uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, This last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. She helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that uh, that I can do, And, uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. And then finally, one more thing I want to read before we get to the interview with Rosebud. And her special, by the way, is really funny. Um, This is an awful moment filled out by Jay Phillip. And they write, I looked through my ex-girlfriend's phone once to check her recent texts with her nearby friends and family after I ended our relationship, and she told me she needed to look for a new apartment. A few weeks before, she had punched me for the first time, and she came from an abusive family. 
One of her family members had threatened to hurt me at one point if I broke her heart. So I was afraid that she was going to physically hurt me or get one of her friends or family to hurt me. Luckily, she was only talking to them about how ugly, fat, and lazy I was. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) <laughs> I am here with Rosebud Baker. Uh, do you like to be called Rosie, Rosebud, Rosebud Butter, Ro- Butter? <laughs> Rosebud, Rosie, those are the most common. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two common ones. I just watched your, uh, is it Comedy Central? Comedy Special? Central on uh, YouTube, yeah. Yeah, uh, called Whiskey Fists and uh, <laughs> really funny, man. You... Uh, <laughs> You thank you. You really push the the boundaries. I imagine there are people that are upset with some of the things that you you say or talk about. But you know, it's nice seeing comedy that that is personal, <laughs> personal and unapologetic. Uh, yeah, I also like how you you talk about personal stuff. Um, I was like, oh, she this person has definitely been to therapy. Yeah. Oh, pa- yeah. Absolutely. I I mean, it would be insane for me to talk about those things if I hadn't, (laughs) if I was going to the audience for help. Right. Uh, Where were you raised? Um, I was raised outside of D.C., Northern Virginia, that area, um, the whole Nova area. Um, What's Nova? Nova's Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. That's that's actually a very specific Nova phrase. I forget that. I read somewhere that that's the largest concentration of wealth in the United States. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I grew up in a very, very wealthy neighborhood, wealthy family, um, a lot of money. Your uh, grandfather is uh, James Baker. Mm -hmm. Um, Is he still around? He's still around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For younger listeners or people who aren't political, he was for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, the de facto attempting broker of middle uh, peace in the in the middle east yeah. did he broker the oslo accords i don't did know <laughs> that was like the only uh, middle east temporary uh success brokerage uh, yeah i mean it's been uh i i've had um it's funny you know when i say like do you know who my grandfather is part of me is really asking You know, like, I'm not just... (laughs) Tell me about it. Yeah, I'm like, no, please tell me. Because I can't understand that those... I can't understand really his job. I I understand people more from an emotional perspective. There was a a book written about him by Peter Baker called The Man Who Ran Washington that I just bought. And I was like, I didn't even think that they would send it to me as a gift, but they did. But I bought it because I was very curious about his childhood and I'm becoming more curious about my 
like what generational trauma is and what that, Mm -hmm. how it gets passed down. And so reading that book really helped me understand a lot about myself. Yeah, you talked in your special about your dad being uh, unavailable. Was it emotionally or physically or both? Um, More emotionally. uh, Is he in politics or is he in politics? He's not. He's a lawyer. So so he was a little bit physically unavailable as well, but it was really more of like work-related. He was always at work and he was always traveling for work. Um, And my dad is, even now, he is, uh, he does his best. You know, Mm -hmm. that's sort of where I've landed with it. He does his best, but he is not an emotional. I think he is an emotional man, but he doesn't know how to express it. Yeah. What? When was he born? Jeez, I don't know. He's like 65 now. So. So, yeah, he was uh, he came of age probably in the early 60s. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that that uh, generations, it's kind of hit and miss with uh, in terms of being in touch with kind of yeah. uh, emotionally what's going on with right. them. But I think for a lot of people that are workaholics, it keeps them from ever really doing any kind of inner yeah. reflection. Yeah, very much so. And I, I definitely see a little bit of that myself, too. Yeah. You are a sober person. You've been sober 13 years? I've been sober for, yeah, 13 years and 14 years in September. Uh, wow. Well, actually, this week. Yeah, this week. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> happy uh, happy birthday in advance. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I, I would love to talk about your childhood, any kind of snapshots that you think are emblematic of what it was like being you mm-hmm. the either the world around you or your perception of the world around you and yourself yeah anything come to mind yeah i um it's so funny when people go uh your childhood anything come to mind right. <laughs> it's like some people it's a blank yeah a lot of my childhood is a blank um but i do remember the feeling very very early on that i didn't really fit in the world that i existed in. Um, As I said, I grew up in a very wealthy Mm -hmm. part of the country. Um, I had a very wealthy family. My dad, I mean, when when I was born, they weren't wealthy. Mm -hmm. But as I grew up, my dad became more and more successful. And uh, as a lawyer and my mom, who is a painter and an artist, she sort of stopped doing what she does and I and she just had kids. She just and my mom was pregnant literally from the time I was born until I was ten. And five, five girls. Five girls. Family. Yeah. And I knew that my grandfather was important because of how people talked about him. Um and because as I grew up I understood the concept of like the White House and what that meant. Um but there was like an obsession with him that I didn't really understand and, and wasn't really... On whose part? Just people? My dad's side of the family. Gotcha. And... Uh, Looking for his approval? Yes. Finding validation through being related to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can't speak on... I can't say that they were definitely doing that, but that's what I felt right. from it. And that could have been a little bit of judgment on my part. Mm-hmm. 
But um, yeah, I think I, it just didn't make sense to me why being proud of another person's job didn't make sense to me. Like that cognitively just didn't land. And, um, you know, I remember going to the White House as a kid and feeling like, I hated going there because it was my parents were freaking out the whole time about like stand over here and do that blah, blah, you know and say Mr. President and say and I which president were you meeting Bush senior okay. and um I remember the White House to me I I I remember walking into the White House and <laughs> being like wait so this is a rental like I didn't understand <laughs> the concept of like <laughs> <laughs> the concept that the president didn't own the house that he lived in it comes with the furniture. Yeah, it was like what? Um, and so that to me was underwhelming, right? As like, such a rich kid observation, right? But um, <laughs> it was so funny to me, like looking back at my interpretations of right. you know that world, and I and also I just was a really really sensitive kid. Um, very sensitive in the sense like I didn't it didn't make sense to me why I felt everything so deeply and why everything bothered me so much and why I used to cry to my mom at night being like what's wrong with me and and her telling me like you're just sensitive and there's nothing wrong with that but I felt intuitively like there was because it because it wasn't like welcomed and I was always crying. And you didn't see it around you. And I didn't see it around me. Yeah. I saw it in my mother, Mm -hmm. but my mother was really in survival mode. I think for a lot of my childhood where she was always pregnant with the next one. And that puts you in a state of mind where you're, you know, obviously sensitive, but in this sort of protector survival mode where it's like the family has to stay peaceful for her to feel safe bringing someone else into it you know so there was a lot of pressure to like get along with my siblings um and to to not make waves and it was a very waspy upbringing um not hard to picture yeah you don't you don't say uh how you really feel and if you are saying how you really feel, you're performing it mm-hmm. so that you can get what you want out of whoever you want to get it from. Right. Are there any specific instances that, that you remember? There's that, you know, going to sleep at night and asking my mom, like, what's wrong with me? Right. Um, and there's, I remember going to kindergarten, my first day of kindergarten, and being put on a bus to go to school. And this guy... I don't even remember what he said. He just like looked at me through the bus, the crack in the seat and the window. He was sitting Mm -hmm. in front of me and he looked behind him and he started to like talk to me. And I don't know why, but I felt like he was making fun of me. Mm -hmm. And I just started bawling and was like, I want to go home. You know, I, the bus was so cold and sad. Like a school bus is a very sad place. It's, it's um it feels institutional, right. you know? And um and so I felt And it's a jungle in y- a lot of ways. Yeah. Whether it 
it is or not in reality to those little minds. Right. It is your first experience of being dropped off in the rainforest. Yeah, exactly. And I think I just, I didn't react to that very well at all. Um, and I, I like cried through the whole first day of school. Um, and that kind of became my rela- <laughs> my relationship <laughs> to school in general. I never was a good student. Um, I was... Uh, learning disabled in math, which she's, is like she's using air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like because it's such a nice way to say stupid. Like it's <laughs> such a it's such a nice way to be like you just don't get this. Like you're disabled from learning this is like okay. So why do I have to learn it then? You know right. what I mean? Right. And then they do things like they'll they'll be like, well, let's not. You know, we don't want to make her feel like she is out of place in a regular class. So let's put her in a trailer in the back of the school. And it's like... <laughs> She'll feel special. Right. And then the other kids are like watching you get homeschooled at school. And that was like another thing where I oh. I could tell I was just disappointing them. I did not... I did not fit in. I, I tried really hard to fit in and I just never did. I... I started getting crushes on boys in like first grade and I remember playing like kissy girls or whatever where you chased after a boy and tried to kiss him and I remember this boy said you can kiss me if you throw a rock at the window (laughs) and I was like yeah no problem okay deal and so I shattered enabling already shattered my classroom window oh my god that's fantastic and was sent to the principal's office and never got a kiss from this guy, by the way. Never delivered on that promise. And you never trusted men again. And I never... Tr- <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just remember, like, this feeling of, like, I'm not pretty enough. I am louder than I'm supposed to be. I'm too sensitive. I, I'm too much. I'm too much, yeah. yeah. And not enough at the same time. Exactly. What and, a mindfuck that is. Yeah, and I... And I remember getting sent to therapy very early on, uh, which this was back in, you know, the 90s. So nobody went to therapy in the 90s. It wasn't popular to go to therapy in the 90s. You know, like my mother was very open to it. Um, My dad was absolutely not. My dad didn't even want to know that I was in therapy, you know. Wow, that says a lot. Yeah. And um didn't ask me how it was going, didn't ask me about, like, how I was feeling at school. My dad never asked me, like, how are you feeling? I don't think I've ever been asked that by my dad, ever. What are some questions that you think your dad would be unable to answer about you that the average dad probably would? Mm. What do you think drives her? Um. Actually, he might be, he might... He might, Anger. <laughs> he might think that he has the answer right, to that. Right. Um, you know, who is she deep down? Mm-hmm. What uh, What does she care about? You know, <laughs> things like that. What do you think your mom would say? My mom could answer that question like it was a uh, Jane Eyre novel. My mother is extremely sensitive, extremely intuitive, Absolutely. Whichever part of your brain is creative. Is it right? Is it the right side of your brain? 
I don't know. Well, if the right side of your brain is the creative side, she's very right-brained. My dad is very left-brained, if that's the logic side. But I'm I'm so – I have no idea which is which. Um, I, think, I think you're right. And I'm a little ashamed I've been doing a podcast about mental health for yeah. 10 years, <laughs> and I don't even know well, the most basic answer to Well, that. I think people who are uh, – who pay attention to mental health are more creative people. You know, yes. and the people that would know the answer to that question are the logic, math, mathematical right. people, you know. Right. Yeah. I, I think there is a gift and a curse to being born feeling like you don't fit in. The The gift being that you are a seeker and curious about why things work the way they do. I don't know if that's a subconscious attempt to try to fit in, to try to find the key that unlocks the door to feeling a part of. Right. But it's it's hard to relax when you feel like doom is around the corner. Yeah. And I remember always feeling like I was doing things wrong. I mean, always. And I didn't I did have a kind of confidence that came from nowhere. I don't know where it came from. It was just something that I had and never really let go of. Con- confidence in what areas? Because you, you know, you describe feeling insecure in some areas. What was your sense of humor? Was that how you? Um, my sense of humor was a strength that I had, and I knew that. Yeah. Um, my ability to perform was a strength and I knew that I could also make things happen. Like I could, when I was a kid, I would, uh, I would set up these big plays in my neighborhood and I would corral all the kids in the neighborhood who weren't interested in being a part of this, by the way. I would put them in costumes. I would produce an entire play. I would have somebody selling tickets at the end of the driveway, and then I would have seating, and it would all be in the yard. And I would put on these big plays, these big productions, with, like, casts of, like, 10 to 15 people. And and just do that, because that's, like, what I felt like doing for the day. And... um, yeah, I remember that very you well. You've been very good at persuading people. I it wasn't persuasion. It was like I just told them what to do. I just <laughs> people just listened to me. Right. And I had this big booming voice which I've had my whole life mm-hmm. and I've had this voice literally since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And um and I, they just listened, you know? And I think I also had age on my side when kids are, you know, age is everything when you're a kid. Yeah. If you're six and a half and I'm six, I'm going to listen to what you have to say because right. you're wise and old. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, uh, I just would, I just would do that. So I was confident in those areas, in the areas where I knew I could, I was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just leaned really hard into those. And I think that was a little bit of my reaction to my inability to kind of function in the world, mm-hmm. uh, in the world that I that has to do with, you know, <laughs> the adult world. Right. Um, and so I, I, I really just decided at a young age that that was, that seemed to be the thing that everybody was proud of. And so I was just going to do that mm-hmm. and I'll just really try hard at, at that. And, you know, my, my parents tried to get me into sports and normal things and uh, I wasn't, 
that wasn't my strength either. I was like a little roly poly kid and Mm -hmm. they would put me in soccer and I was always immediately just the goalie. And then I wouldn't be paying attention to the game. I didn't care if we won or lost. I, I truly couldn't have cared less. And I would just be like drawing (laughs) in the dirt while people scored. And my dad was like, I remember that infuriating my dad, just being like, she doesn't care about these things. And I think that I grew up in a time where if you didn't fit in somewhere, they just tried to make it happen. They just were like, instead of seeing that and going, oh, this isn't working for her, let's adapt. Uh, Parents did not adapt to children. Like children adapted to their parents when I was growing up. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, so I I mean I can't wait to see what happens with the next generation cuz I think we really have gotten even though we're having less kids I think we're getting to be, be- better and better parents because mm-hmm. we are a generation of people that started to dig deep and see what's in there, right. you know, see yeah. what happens. Um Yeah, so I, I I feel like I'm rambling now. Did no. I answer that question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel like you did. Um, are you comfortable talking about your your sister that, that passed away? Yeah. I mean, let's talk about something light. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's transition let's into something. Let's fun this up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I have to go back a little ways okay. to get into that. But so I was the oldest of five girls, right? It's me, my sister Hallie, my sister Mary Stewart, and then the twins were born, Jackie and Graham. Um, That was when I was 10 years old, the twins came along. And I remember my sister Hallie, when my parents told us that the twins were being born, um, my sister Hallie going, how are you going to afford that? (laughs) And she was eight. Um, And we weren't strapped for cash but we were constantly reminded of how much it costs to keep us alive and so i see why that was the thing in her mind um we were constantly reminded by my dad like oh this costs this much and this is this is costing me an arm and a leg and and so it was like this very like well we didn't ask to be born you know um but so Hallie... Yeah, I'm always amazed by the parent who is inconvenienced by the needs of the child. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That was... That's a perfect way to put it. That is exactly how it felt. Yeah. Um, and my sister, uh, my sister Mary Stewart was very young. She was very excited. Um, she was probably six at the time mm-hmm. or five. Anyway, so the twins were born... And it was this big thing. Everybody was so excited because it was all five girls. And my mom changed her license plate to six chicks and um, got this big suburban called Big Red and the, with the six chicks license plate on it. Right. And we were just known as the Baker Girls. And everybody in the neighborhood knew the Baker Girls because there were so many of us. Right. Um, and I... I really love my siblings. Like I, that is one thing that growing up, I remember really being so happy to have that many people in my house mm. um, and have that many women. And, um, and I'm very close to my siblings. So, you know, I'm growing up, I'm like 
I'm probably in high school. Uh, as I was leaving for high school, I was kind of starting to get to that age where I was like, okay, this is a lot of personalities, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, In high school or in your family? In my family. Okay. And I was looking forward to going to college because I thought, let me get out of here. It's just like, you know, as you're in high school, you get to know yourself better and better. Mm-hmm. I, of course, started uh, experimenting with drugs and was like a pothead, this like huge pothead, because when I was in eighth grade, my mother was driving me to ballet class. I was a dancer all through high school. Mm-hmm. So she's driving me to ballet class and she picks me up and she's swerving all over the road she's like and i'm and her head's nodding up and down and i thought oh my god this this bitch is so tired from having so many kids Mm -hmm. and that is literally what i thought but my mom was blackout drunk really she was completely unconscious behind the wheel driving me and my sister to our practice and um and i'm in the back in my leotard and I, i was I remember being like, hey, mom, do you do you want me to drive? I remember offering to drive and really disconnecting. Like I, I really at that moment detached from the reality of what was happening. It didn't even occur to me that she could be drunk because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen anyone get drunk. Right. So it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody in a blackout that I could that I can remember. And uh, she ran she ran the car into the back of another car at a red light, got a drunk driving accident, got hauled off to jail that night. And I and my sister were driven home in a cop car. And my mom, who spent the night in prison, got out and got sober. Um, she's still sober? She's still sober to this day. That's so awesome. Yeah. And as she was you know, beginning that process of getting into recovery, I was picking things up. Um, sort of through osmosis and I was like oh I think I might be an alcoholic or an addict because I started remembering all these times where I would like hide food under my bed as a kid and I would go to a friend's house and I would just think about going home to like eat that food and it was just like the most exciting thing was just like I'm with friends playing as a child and all i want to be doing is secretly hoarding Ah, that adrenaline rush just thinking about whatever it is yeah and at such a young age i mean very very young so i'm picking stuff like that up and i i decided okay well i'm not gonna drink because i'm probably an alcoholic and so i didn't i didn't drink but my sophomore year of high school i started smoking pot And or no, it was yeah, it was my sophomore year of high school. I didn't have my first drink until I was 18 and my parents had gotten separated. And I remember they got separated. I was noticing them fighting more and more. The twins were seven. I was in my senior year. So I was getting ready to leave home. And everything in my house just started feeling really, really tense after my mom got sober. Really tense. I mean... My dad inviting her to wine tastings, even though she had made it clear, like, I can't be around alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, And my dad just, it didn't get in there. Like, my dad couldn't compute. He didn't understand. And uh, 
so I'm just uh, I was kind of like I'm ready to leave you know and I think I started acting out by drinking and smoking and I started to feel really guilty a lot of the time because I could tell things were bad in my house but I just I just couldn't be around it. I just wanted to run away. And I literally did. I would run away at night. I would go hang out with my friends or I would spend days at their houses. And and then right before my high school graduation, uh, we all got invited to go to a friend's place for like this big party celebrating our graduation. And my whole family came, everybody except for my dad. And all my sisters, I remember everybody getting in the car. It was t- took forever to leave that day. We were just like, I was like, can we all just get in the car? You know what I mean? Like the high school senior sure. being like, get me out of this here. This is the worst thing in the world. Yeah, this is the worst day of my life. And um, so we finally get there. I remember taking my sister Graham into uh, into the changing room, getting her in her little tiny like bathing suit. She was seven at the time. I was 17. And the twins were all in their bathing suits and they were playing. They had, there was a big pool in the backyard and it was connected to a little hot tub on the mm-hmm. side. Um, again, grew up with money. Right. So they, they're playing and I'm like, there's another party that's happening that I wanted to be at that had like less parents at it. And so I left early to go to that party. And I get a call when I get there that's like one of your sister's there was an accident and one of your sisters got hurt or is going to the hospital. And I thought immediately I was like, oh, it's Jackie. Cause like the twins were out of the two of them. Jackie was the one that usually got into trouble. Mm-hmm. And then I remember next thing I knew, two of my sisters were getting dropped off with me at this other party. And I realized, no, it's Graham. Graham's the one who was going to the hospital. And then something happened to me. I just got this feeling in my gut that something horrible had happened. Really bad. And I put my sisters in the car and I drove us all home. And I remember speeding home and my sister Hallie being like, what are you doing? Stop driving this fast. And I remember thinking she might, I remember yelling, she might be dead. And we pull into the driveway, we walk into the kitchen, and my mom is sitting with her back to me in the kitchen over the sink with two of her friends, and she turns around and she said she didn't make it. And that was, and I just, everything collapsed around me. Everything. I mean, my whole, my whole world. And she had drowned. Yeah. So she had been in this hot tub And she had uh, the drain from the hot tub had caught her hair and they three grown men couldn't pull her from the drain. So, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I describe it in my special as drowning from uh, or just drowning, but it was entrapment. So we couldn't get her out. There was everyone was there. Yeah. Um, Just a nightmare. And I remember my um, my dad was out of town and I just crawled out to the to the driveway 
and I grabbed a cigarette and I started smoking. And then I, but I, I, all the wind got knocked out of me. I like, I, I literally couldn't stand. And I immediately went to go smoke. And I, uh, and then I called my boyfriend at the time, my high school boyfriend. And I don't remember anything after that. I don't remember the next like two years really um, of my life. Everything was, I was just in this shock and grief and I went into like what you call delayed grief, you know, where you don't, you don't really grieve at all. I, my mind, when I heard that my sister died, I couldn't remember a single thing that we'd done together. I remembered putting her in her bathing suit and I remembered one time where I had, it was a couple weeks before, where I had driven her, she wanted me to drive her to 7-Eleven and I wanted to drive to a friend's house and I said, I can't take you to 7-Eleven and I remember her disappointed face when she slammed the door and walked into the house and that was all I remembered and I had had dreams leading up to her death where I felt this deep guilt in my dreams. Some, somebody in my family dying, somebody like going away or getting locked up. Or, but it was all family related, like mm. I'm leaving them guilt. And uh, because I just wanted to get the hell away from my, my family. And um, yeah, so I remember... I remembered those two things and that was it. And to this day, I can't remember a single thing that we did together. Wow. Yeah. After years of therapy and grief therapy, trauma therapy, you know, I'm talking like punching pillows and screaming and like trying to get it out of my body. Nothing. Just my, my whole, my whole memory bank just deleted. Like, and what is what are the thoughts and feelings that come up around not being able to remember anything? Regret and um, a sadness. You know, I'm sad that I don't remember her. And I remember how she looked really well. She looked, I mean, she was just like the most angelic girl, you know, this brown hair, big brown eyes. Um and really wise, like a really wise person mm-hmm. for how old she was. And, um, you know, I, I think mostly about every time I feel guilt, which I do. I mean, I do feel guilt. And there's a lot that I've, I've talked to my, to my therapist so much about how my family wouldn't have been there if it weren't for me. And... They wouldn't have even, they wouldn't have been at that house if it weren't for me because I don't, I'm the one who was friends with that person. They, they wouldn't have been invited, you know, um, they didn't even have to come. And, uh, so I, I really still to this day, I have, I have trouble making sense of the fact that it's not my fault and I know it's not my fault, fault, like I didn't kill my sister, but 
it's very hard for me to try to reconcile how this could have been avoided if I hadn't been if I hadn't been invited to this party and if I, my family hadn't known me. I think any person in your shoes would probably do the same thing to themselves. Yeah. I think it's impossible. Yeah. Not to. And I heard somebody say one time, I think it was a therapist, that it's it's easier to blame ourselves when something tragic happens than to see the truth is that the world can be chaotic yeah. and terrible. Yeah. And that's, that is really what happened. I mean, that's what I had to reconcile after the fact, you know, I think, um, and yeah, it do, you're so right. It does. I, I think my, I do have the kind of brain that latches onto something that can make, that I can make sense of. Mm -hmm. Um, where instead of accepting a truth that I find unacceptable, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, even now I have this deep fear of being drugged at a party. It's always a party situation. If I go to a party mm -hmm. and I leave that party, I have these deep, crazy panic attacks of, um, like I've been poisoned or drugged. That's like a thing that is that still happens to me to this day. It happened after my wedding. I mean, I was on my honeymoon and I was like, I've been drugged. And my husband was like, no, you haven't. With with no facts on the ground to back it up? No facts on the ground. I just like, you know, we were in, uh, of course, it's like, it's reasoning that's just what if reasoning. Mm -hmm. You know, we were in Tulum, which is where like, Rogan fans go to process their trauma with DMT. Mm -hmm. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, there's DMT everywhere and there's ayahuasca and, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know what could happen. It's all like crazy thinking. But this is really what it is. This is like, these are the thoughts in my brain. And, um, and I, I'll just have these deep panic attacks that make me feel it all reinforces the fear that drugs are kicking in. Right. Because I, I lose vision and I can't feel my arms and I can't breathe. Wow. And it's it's a lot like the sensation of like drowning, wow. you know, and it still happens to this day. So it's just a crazy um, thing like what grief can do if it's not like experienced and moved through and processed in a very careful way even though you're trying like hell to process it right but i waited a long 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 time before i was willing to touch it i mean i would lie to my therapists i have therapists that think i have all four sisters who are still alive i for real didn't even touch it and I mean, it's just so crazy to lie to your therapist. <laughs> but, and it happens all the I time. But I did it. Yeah, I was just like, you know what? If they're good, they'll figure it out. <laughs> and that was my logic. And I thought, this makes sense. I'm not wasting yes. money doing this. To be fair, you were seeing Agatha Christie. <laughs> I, I and swear. it was on a train. Yeah. <laughs> I was like... 
one of these people who when I would go into the therapist's office and I would tell them what I was experiencing, they would go and of course leaving all the drugs and alcohol out of the out of the equation also. They would say, "Oh, you're bipolar." And I would be like, "Oh, thank God. I'm a complicated genius." Um, <laughs> you know, this isn't grief. This right. is I'm not sad. I'm I'm just brilliant. And that was like how I processed all of this. Um and I think that a lot of my the symptoms of my grief really did present themselves as uh bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Like I had these manic days where I would just go days and days and days drinking and drugging and uh shopping and like fucking everyone and it like it was crazy. And then I would go into these deep dark holes where I wouldn't come out for like four or five days, you know. And um so it was it was really crazy. I mean, I really I think um why am I why am I thinking Joan Baez? Uh who wrote the year of magic magical thinking um anyway there's probably people screaming into their speakers <laughs> the but anyway i uh i read this book and she talks about how when you when you experience grief when you lose someone they say it's going to make you crazy but you don't realize it's literally going to make you crazy like you really are going to go crazy yeah and I think that my fear after leaving parties and being drugged, really the the worst thing that could happen from me getting drugged after a party is, uh, by it's always psychedelic drugs, is me losing my mind in public. And that's how I felt after my sister died. I found grief and sadness to be the most embarrassing feelings I'd ever felt. Joan Didion. Joan Didion, thank you. Yes, God, great Great writer. writer. Um, And really interesting documentary uh, about her. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, grief is a motherfucker, man. It 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 brings so many people to the party. It brings uh, shame. Mm -hmm. It brings confusion. It brings hopelessness. Yeah. Uh, I didn't when when my dad died in in two thousand six. I didn't cry for the first year and a half. Mm-hmm. I, and I felt like a terrible person. Yeah. I had a friend who had committed suicide six years before that. And I had this, when I was drinking, I had to get drunk to cry. Yeah. And I just felt like, who, what kind of a fucking monster yeah. are you? And uh, we were talking before we started recording about dogs and about why it is that we cry harder when our pets die than we do sometimes for people who were close to us when they die. I I really do think that it's in part it's that our bodies shut down. I think that I I really believe that shock is one of those things that protects you from the magnitude of your of your feelings, you know, because when my mother lost her little girl, she uh she never got another period. But really? she never got menopause either. She never went through menopause. She lost her daughter, and then her body stopped. Wow. And my mom was young when when Graham died. You know, she was in her 40s. And uh, it was just over. So I, I look at that and I go, 
it's a physical experience. You know, our feelings are inextricably connected to our body um, and our minds. Mm -hmm. And it's all connected. And you can't ignore any one of them. Yeah. And um, I think that, I think I tried to ignore all of them. (laughs) I think I really, because my parents had separated. My sister had died. I was going to college. And then at the funeral, it was made clear to me that my dad had brought his new girlfriend to the funeral, who I did not know about. Wow. Yeah. That is a important piece of information and in getting a clear picture of uh, <laughs> where you come from. Well, when else is he going to introduce her? Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't tell me they made out on the casket <laughs> <laughs> just her her legs wrapped around I'm like him. at that point just put me in there with her i mean christ it was really it was like this earthquake of things that where my whole life rearranged itself without my permission you know what i mean mm. i wasn't walked through any of it i wasn't old enough to understand it and i was um and i blamed myself for so much of it at a girl yeah at a girl yeah really You're just go get her yeah you know i wanted to make sure i took responsibility <laughs> how, how do you think your personality adapted to your new perspective on the world or yourself if, if at all well i think that i did still did you become cynical oh yeah yeah, I did, for sure. Um, but you know, I is, 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 Sorry to cut you off, but when I was watching your, your special, um, I, I felt a real kinship to what I felt like is your, is your comedic spirit. Mm-hmm. Because I could see in there deep, deep cynicism. Because some of your jokes are <laughs> really like, wow, is that fucking dark. Yeah. And... I I could see, wow, this is a person who I don't know if they're still really angry, but they fucking hate the world. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was really angry. And I and really underneath that was very, very, very sad. You know, I go to anger first. Always. Anger is easier for me because it makes me feel powerful. Mm hmm. Anger and, and right. Yeah. It makes me feel powerful. It makes me feel right. It makes me, it, it lets others know that they, they didn't, well, in my mind, when sure. I'm angry, I go, this person uh, isn't going to get to me. They're not going to get to that part of me that they think they're going to get to, that like deep hurt. And um, obviously, if I'm acting out in anger, they already have. Right. But, isn't it interesting too that that we blame ourselves for the things we shouldn't, mm-hmm. and then we give ourselves credit Where for, none the, of it for is... the things <laughs> yeah. we shouldn't? Like I'm in control of this situation, right. you know, this person, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Right. It's that uh, God complex, right. you know, and um, yeah, I it it definitely made me cynical. It made me angry. It made me frightened more than anything else it made me very frightened because i realized that everything can change in one day 
and you'll never be ready. And it's a terrifying thought. It's terrifying. And I'm still terrified by it. Like I still, every single time I say goodbye to somebody, I'm like, that could be the last time. And I, even like through the pandemic, it was, it made me, I just went, I can't, I can't conceive of how much loss is happening around me, but I could conceive of the feeling of loss on a personal level and then everybody clapping every night. And I thought to myself, if I had lost someone to COVID, how would I feel? You talk about clapping for the healthcare workers when you were living in New York. Yeah. You guys would go up on your rooftop. Yes. And I thought about all the nurses and the hospitals running out of money and us clapping because I, I thought if I was a nurse even and I was and my job was in jeopardy um, because of this pandemic and I'm and I'm listening to applause every night like I you know I just I really resent and I still resent the that human impulse to try to tie things up in a nice yes. bow. Yes, which is in all our movies. And yeah. It's so nauseating. It's nauseating and it and it happens so often with death mm-hmm. because we want it to be uncomfortable. Uh, we yeah. we don't want to sit with the uncomfortable reality. Yeah. Of it. And as much as my comedy is a uh as much as I'm like lighting all that on fire, I'm it's I'm speaking to myself in all of it because I saw, you know, at my sister's memorial, these <laughs> we like let these butterflies go. But then I was like, where were we holding these butterflies? Like and then somebody was like, oh, they were in the freezer. And I was like, you froze them. So you freeze butterflies to like let them go at a funeral. And oh I just thought God. this is so fucked up. And so symbolic and disgusting. And like, I just thought none of this is pretty. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't, I hated therapy for a long time because of that. Because I thought therapy was like, I had never been to a therapist that where it had worked or where I'd made any progress, but I'd been forced into therapy at an early age. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of like instant, like, no, you know? It wasn't until I'd gotten sober, I was like six years sober, and I was dating another alcoholic who was deeply wounded. Um, and was uh, he sober? He was not. I mean, he was. He would have periods of time where he was dry, and then he would go out, and I named the whole special after... Whiskey Fists. Whiskey Fists, because he was abusive, but he was always so drunk he would miss. And I thought... <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, I'm doing everything in this relationship, you know, and even if you if you were going to hit me, I'd have to help you do that. So I just (laughs) it was like I'd have to, like, lean into the so, you know, I but I wrote it um, for him because I, I mean, I named the special that not as like a not to stick it to him. It's because I am also whiskey fists and everything that he did in my relationship I did while drinking and everything that I uh, make fun of is I'm it's part of me like it's were you physically abusive when you would drink um 
yeah, I was. There were times when I was like when I would try to be. I mean, I'm five three and I'm uh, pretty useless, but I would try to fight people, you know, and I would start fights and then I would run away from them. I mean, I was that girl. Yeah. Um, but but I was filled with so much rage mm-hmm. that it wasn't the same as like somebody at a bachelorette party throwing an insult out there and like walking out of the room. Right. Uh, wobbly legged I mean I was like I would come in try to start a fight swing at people and then run out and try to and and it was like I'm so ashamed of that still um I mean when I when I got clean I I made all of my amends and everything but it it doesn't really it doesn't feel good to admit that I did those things and I think because alcoholics and addicts deep down we're such narcissists we want everybody to approve of us and our messy past is just such an uncomfortable thing that there might be people out there talking shit about us right well absolutely i mean of course there's always going to be people out there doing that um but I'm thinking more even just on like a personal level, even if you've apologized to someone for things like that, there's nothing that you can do that will ever make it okay that you did it, right. you know? Um, and I think that's what I, I, I don't like that it's just there. It's just part of. Is, is there an amend that you can recall that felt, um, I don't know, spiritual, like you felt like, oh, there is some benevolent force in the universe and everything isn't just a shit show from the past. That people people do uh, want to give somebody a second chance. Well, yeah, because my when I was told that I needed to make amends to people um, and then I told, I, I said what I had done, the amends that I was given was you need to never reach out to that person again, mm. which was the hardest thing to do. Because you want to fix it. I really wanted to fix it. And um, so I, I just had to practice boundaries. And that's so hard. <laughs> it was so hard. And I think it was about, it was a, I think I must have been like seven years sober. And it was after I'd broken up with my ex, the one who was abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a phone call, I think it was on the anniversary of my sobriety and it was from the ex that I had done the same things to. Mm. And I was able to make an amends to him and apologize to him. How did he handle it? Really well. You know, I mean, he, but he had been in a lot of pain since since we had broken up. And I think I, I really contributed to that. I mean, I did not, I was emotionally abusive for sure. And, um, it's funny before we get sober and even when we're sober, sometimes, especially comedians, we can't see how verbally hurtful we've been because it's like, if somebody laughs, that's valid. Right. Yeah. It's so fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I think 
comedians kind of fall into that a lot. Yeah. Where we go, if somebody laughs, then it's... But I do have a feeling, and this is like, for me, I go, there's ways to write jokes where you take into consideration um, the experiences of others. Uh, But there is no way to write a joke where it will be funny to everyone. And you do have to write from a place that is genuine. And for me, going on stage and making people laugh with the parts of myself that I had to spend most of my life trying to hide is that's the benefit of like comedy. And And I can can say as a fellow comedian, that is an accomplishment. Right. And you should be really proud of yourself. Yeah. Because a lot of people, myself included, could never find a way to make the ugly parts of, of ourselves funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not pretty to like joke about your uh your ex trying to hit you. It's not pretty to joke about um loss and grief and death, but there is humor in all of that. There and for me to spend the time grieving all of it in order to find what's funny, it it drives me to spend time on myself that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise spend the time doing, you know? I'm not driven to self-examination. I'm just in a life that forces it. Like, right. I... Well, I gotta say, you're you're special. Um, there is a, a lot... It's clear that there has been a lot of uh, self-reflection in it. And uh, it's, it's very emotionally astute, Thank you. Thank you. It yeah. means a lot. Which which I enjoy in people's comedy because I want to get a sense of of who they are in addition Same. to their their comedy. Same. I I've always jokes are great and I love jokes and uh and I admire them and I I could sit in a room and talk about them for hours. Yes. And you are a fucking great joke writer. Thank I you. gotta say. Thanks. Yeah. I, I imagine people have tried to, to get you to write for a series. Um I've I've written on a couple shows. I yeah. I wrote on the Roast Battle uh for Alec Baldwin and i okay. I wrote for uh that damn Michael Che. Okay. And we we were working on sketches and we're just doing season two now. And it's I do I love writing. I love it. But um but if you don't get a sense of who the person is all you really are doing is like it's like watching a straight A student do comedy. It's like watching Hillary Clinton do comedy, you know? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, she could learn how to write a joke and do it, but could she ever show you who she really is? Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um which is I think what we want more than anything and I think it's why we look to movies and yeah stand up and all that other selves uh, other things to to try to get a sense of <laughs> our place in the world are other people like us am i a good person yeah yeah i mean i i feel i mean i'm sure as we all do i feel metaphysically changed by the last year and a half like very lost in terms of who i am not knowing and I know for a fact that this, having been here before, 
that this is one of the most creative places to be in, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't get the, you don't get to reap the benefits of it yet. It's, right. it's like, you just have to be in it and, and be aware of it and observe it in order to reap those benefits. I don't know about you, but when the pandemic first hit and we went on lockdown, I felt like very oddly comfortable, like the my external world, everybody else was, was living my internal world. Yeah. Like it was a reflection of the doom that I've had in my bones <laughs> since I was a little kid. And it was like, like, finally, yes, yeah. you know, this, the, the set designer has come in. Yeah. Like this is, this is what we've been working for, right. you know? Yeah. I remember calling up my therapist and who I'd been saying to, for years, I've been like, everything that I have, everything that I've worked for, it could all go away. It could all go away. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I called him up and I was like, See? This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> what did I tell you, Peter? You know, I was like, I get at least $500 back from the last five sessions, you know? Um, and I, but that's how I felt. I, I did. I felt like right. avenged in a weird way. And to be honest, really relieved, um, at least at first, by... The fact that I, even if I wanted to work too hard, which is my new vice, right. that I didn't, there was no way I could. I've heard a lot of workaholics share that, that it's like the race was tempor- temporarily called off. And- yeah. So you get to just like breathe. Yeah. And, and then I felt my humanity returning and then I got scared. <laughs> 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 then I started to be like, okay, well, that's enough of this. Let's get back to work, folks. You know, the second I got engaged and I was, um, you know, we, we were living in LA when we started this pandemic, me and my, uh, then boyfriend, now husband, and we were in our little bunker and he was like, you want to start a podcast since we're, we could just do it for like the next two weeks or however long this quarantine lasts. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. And so we sat down and we started doing it and, um, and we, uh, got engaged on the third day. And then I, and then I started to really like outside of the rush of being engaged and we're both two addicts. So mm-hmm. You know, like sober addicts, they move faster than lesbians. We are quick. <laughs> and we we got in there and like just everything was so great and we were we were creatively vibing and and then shit got real, you know, life got real and I started to feel like, oh my God, I I have to like enjoy simple pleasures again. And I felt so judgmental of that because I, I wanted, really? yeah, I was like, I don't want to do this. I mean, this is all workaholic stuff, but like you go on a hike with your family as a workaholic and you're like, what kind of loser shit is this? What is the point of this? Yeah. How is this going to make money? Right. And so you start obsessing about like what a waste of time enjoying your life is. And this is one of the things that I'm so grateful to my husband for because he is a real person like he is never he's never gotten caught up in like show business Mm -hmm. or and he's been successful in it 
but he's always like going upstate to go on a hike going to he wants to go see the leaves change he wants to try out this restaurant he wants to take the the dogs to this like dog cafe and i'm like you're sure he's an alcoholic yeah i'm like who gives a shit you know (laughs) but he he's so um he really loves spending time with his closest friends and family and it's been a valuable lesson to me because Mm. that is something that since i have a very um up and down relationship to my family and whether or not i think it's healthy to be around them Mm -hmm. or if it's best for me not to be um he's shown me the value of like it can make you feel good to be there for your family it can even if like you don't necessarily like all of them right you know so he's just been um he's kind of it's a full circle in a way because i thought that getting married was going to get me further away from my family and it's totally done the opposite it's totally they brought him in and he's so excited to be a part of the family and to the point where my sisters he'll be like hey sis and they'll be like please don't call me that like <laughs> you know what i mean like they cuz my family's not we don't we're not nice you know right. like we joke it, we roast each other that's the way that right. we are right. um and so they'll all be like get away from me andy you know get out we don't want to be we don't want to talk you're not my brother andy right. um and he's like you love me you know he was. He sent me a picture of him and my mom walking on the beach yesterday in Maine, and he just wrote, "We're dating" underneath oh, it. Oh my god, that's hilarious! He's so funny. So yeah. So what, if anything, uh, are the things that you struggle with today? You talked about, you know, workaholism. Mm-hmm. And don't let me put words in your mouth. I don't know if that's what you call it or not. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Um. Definitely workaholism, but also the, um, I have a lot of guilt that I still am trying to work through. Like I have a lot of sister's death or just in general, just toxic, pervasive guilt, um, that comes from out of nowhere, just comes from feeling responsible for everyone else. 9-11. Yeah. 9-11. Um, the inconveniences of others the and i don't necessarily show it but i feel it and it does affect my um day-to-day interactions it affects my relationships i have friendships that i have had to walk away from because i've realized oh this is i'm a dumping ground for this person and i'm not uh they never ask me how i'm doing they don't and you feel some guilt for having distance yourself i have a little yeah i get a little bit of like afterburn because there is something that comes from there's an ego pleasure that comes from being somebody else's hero yeah and fixer and fixer and uh the person who has all the answers you know there's obviously like the that feeling is like oh i'm valuable Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to get to a place where i'm valuable just because I exist. Right. I want to get to that place, you know, because I know that on uh, 
I know that theoretically, and sometimes I understand it in practice. I think, but it's still very difficult for me. Like, I still feel this, like, I'll make it clear that I'm not going to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go somewhere with somebody. And they'll they'll try that one other time mm-hmm. to to go, well, what about? And, and that's when it gets, it's like the second time you have to set the boundary is when mm-hmm. I get, like... <sighs> You know, I have to like steal myself. And I think that if I were in a place where I had found balance, that I wouldn't feel that like rush of anger where I feel my jaw tightening and I feel like, how the fuck can you ask me this again? You know, it's it's like all the pent up rage from letting people cross our boundaries in our lifetime is there. Yeah, when we have to. Right. When somebody doesn't listen to us and we're trying out this new tool. Yeah, it it's like be... I could scream at you and you still right. wouldn't hear what I'm trying to say. Um, I also feel like this, uh, you know, having only been married a year. Um, there's a lot that goes into being married that I wasn't prepared for, you know, the amount of compromise that is so much compromise. There's so much compromising and the need to have (laughs) uncomfortable conversations. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of times I get, I get so mad and it's like, all I wanted was a husband that was able to talk to me, Mm -hmm. really talk to me. And I really got that. I got a dream husband. I mean, I made the right choice when it comes to my partner, but I still, when he wants to talk, I still get mad. I still am like, if I wanted to talk this much, I would have married a woman. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I get awful. I say awful things like that to him where I'm just like, ah, and I don't know why being a woman is such an awful insult to a guy, but, um, but it's like this. I have lived my life according to my rules for as long as I've lived. And now I have to consider another person's feelings, <laughs> thoughts, emotions. Schedule. Schedule. Oh, my God. And um, every time I get asked, what are you doing on Wednesday? I'm furious that I have to answer. I, I just... I get so angry when I'm like, I've just woken up. Why do you want me to look at my calendar? You know, why do I have to do this? I have to talk to you. I have to talk to my manager. I have to talk to the agent. I, I got to talk to bookers and you also on top of that. So it feels like, I don't know what I was looking for. Like, did I just want someone to be alone with me? Right. Like, what was I thinking? But it's like we want the best part of having a relationship with none of the parts that are difficult, which is such a childlike view. Yeah. And and really, to me, valuable. Um, it's a valuable lesson for me to learn because it's something where if I feel like my freedom is being taken away, my freedom to do whatever I want to do and to, to be who I want to be, I I confuse sharing a life with someone with robbing myself of my individuality. Yes, yes of having your life taken away. Yeah, and I, I make that mistake over and over and over and over again. And he is constantly pointing out to me, hey, 
I live here with you. We are married, you know, and and it, it's um, it's just so helpful to have someone who's a mirror like that, mm. where it's like it's it's a real adjustment. Yeah, and and valuable if you're going to take that information in and really mull it over rather than just be annoyed by it, right? And and become sarcastic. I don't think anything is as toxic to a relation. Well, actually, there's a lot of things as toxic in a relationship, but sarcasm is so not helpful in a relationship. <laughs> That's so funny that you say that because we are the most sarcastic couple. Yeah. I mean, the two of us together, it's, it yes, can get yes. brutal. And I should say... <laughs> In place of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, When yeah. nothing's going on, making each other laugh is awesome. Yeah. But in place of having the difficult conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you listened to our our podcast, you would go, that's not, that's not healthy, you know? Right. But if you saw us talking on the couch later on about how it went or what, if something he said actually stung then I have to go, oh, what was that about, you know? And I have to ask because ignoring it would be just a pervasive, like, I feel like it's a, go a good example is like if you took a hose, right, and you're running water through a hose and you just folded the hose in half, mm. like what happens when you let go? That's a great analogy. You I know, really like that. It stops the flow of energy to, to not say the thing that you need to say. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to have the conversation, the fine. I can't have this conversation right now, but there's a thing that was said earlier and I just, I'm curious about it and I want to make sure that we come back to it later. Yeah. You know? Anything else you, you'd like to share? Oh, by the way, what is the name of your podcast? Oh, Find Your Beach. Find Your Beach. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, share before we, we wrap up? Oh, man. Um... The special is called Whiskey Fists. Whiskey Fists. It's on Comedy Central's YouTube. If you go to YouTube, you you type in Rosebud Baker Whiskey Fists. The full special will come up um, and a couple of trailers as well. Uh, I would suggest watching the full special. It's um, nine years of work and I'm and it's like a, a little bit of a life story. So I'm so grateful that you had me on. This was so nice. Thank oh, you. I'm glad. I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. It, it's uh, I really enjoyed it. Me too. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks. Really enjoyed talking to her. And uh, again, check out her special. Really funny. Really funny. Um, we'll put the links to all her stuff uh, on the show notes for the podcast. If you are not a donor to the show, maybe it's a little something you, you consider. We can always use uh, more donors. You can do it a couple of different ways. You can um, do it one time through PayPal. You can become a recurring monthly donor through Patreon. The links to all of that stuff are uh, on our website at metalpod.com. Uh, you can also support us non-financially by filling out a survey, which uh, is a great way. You know, maybe we'll read it on the podcast, but it's a big part of what makes the, the podcast what it is. And um, you can give us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. That's uh, another way you can you can help the show and spread the word. Spread the word. Let's dive into some surveys. 
This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled up by Spencer, and he writes, How do you feel about terms like addict? I've been recently going to support group meetings after hearing you talk about how your support groups have helped you so much, and I started saying to myself, I want that too, but it's been hard for me introducing myself as an addict. It feels like I'm lying to myself, as if it wasn't my choice that led me here, but some brain glitch. But that's not right. Have you struggled with this when you talk about sex and love addiction? Um, I haven't struggled with it that much, but I think, you know, it's, it's probably easier, you know, being somebody who's, who's in a creative field, there's so much less stigma in the arts about having an addiction or mental illness or stuff like that. So, you know, uh, I, I certainly was less comfortable sharing that I struggle with sex addiction and love addiction than I was, you know, sharing that I struggle with alcohol and drugs. Uh, but, you know, I started getting help uh, for drugs and alcohol 18 years ago, and I started getting help for <clears throat> sex and love addiction about 11 years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of over that that place and I've just I've made peace with it I've surrendered to the you know that it is what it is and the important thing is is that I just keep trying to become the the person that I want to be and that's but I I do think it gets easier how's that for a long ass winded way of answering your question uh from the struggle in the sentence survey Michael describes uh his anger issues as uh, a fucking loser who emotionally abuses those that love me. And a snapshot from his life, I burnt my house down instead of killing myself. That is heavy. That is fucking heavy. Buddy, I hope you're, you're getting help. You know, anger, anger is a drug. Anger and self-righteousness. I mean, Christ, all you got to do is go on social media and see what a drug self-righteousness and anger are you know we get a little taste of it and it's like blood in the water we just want more and the illusion is that eventually you know if we can just dominate enough people and put people in their place that we're going to feel some kind of relief and we don't you know there's a saying in recovery that resentments are like taking a po- uh, taking poison and it, waiting for the other person to die uh this is uh, also from the struggle in a sentence filled out by uh, Biola and uh, about her depression. She writes, like I'm trapped in a frosted glass box and can only see the shadows of the people outside living their lives. About her anxiety, like an avalanche waiting for that one snowflake to send me roaring down a mountain. About her OCD, like I need to take my surroundings apart and restore them to like new conditions so they don't break and crush me. And about her PTSD, like there are tiny insects crawling all over my body. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds, oh, that sounds awful. I imagine people with PTSD experience, everybody probably experiences their own particular potpourri of symptoms. This is uh, multiple people's answer uh, to a question from the Back in Time survey. Uh, If you could have any superpower, what would it be and what would you do with it? One person writes, I think I'd like the ability to start and stop time. I'd sleep for weeks and explore explore places I wouldn't be able to if time was moving forward. 
That's an interesting one. I think that one would be on a lot of people's radar. Excuse me. <coughs> I, uh, I wonder, though, if you're freezing other people, but you're still moving, does that mean that you age and they don't? And then you'd have to use your things judiciously, unless you wanted to fuck with people's heads. And you could, you know, freeze them for 10 years. Right in the middle of a coffee shop conversation. And all of a sudden, you got a gray beard. Somebody writes, teleportation. I would spontaneously travel just for a day or two. But I would not even need a hotel because I could sleep in my own bed. And I could visit my family faster. I could easily steal money from a bank. Somebody writes, either time travel to alter my past or understanding animals. I love my dogs and would really like to know what they say and talk about. I often make up conversations and what they say, but it's just me anthropomorphizing them to conform with human expectations and social cues. Yeah, I don't know if I would want to know what dogs are trying to say or thinking because I have a feeling it's probably a lot more selfish than I think it is. Somebody writes, I would want to be able to heal people. You are a much nicer person than I am. I don't think that one has ever popped onto my radar. Somebody writes, super speed. I'm not sure what I'd do with it besides get groceries really quickly. Well, Amazon would definitely hire you. Uh, Somebody writes, reading people because my anxiety tells me that everybody wants me dead. Somebody else writes, I would have emotional superpowers that let me understand my feelings and those of others accurately. And then this one is beautiful. If I could multiply empathy and spread it around the world, I think that would be a good superpower. You are a nice person. I don't think I've ever (laughs) imagined that as a superpower. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence. Uh, survey filled out by a person who calls himself uh, Goliath's Roar and about their depression, bipolar depression, wanting to feel the sun but refusing to leave the shade. About anxiety, the only perk having the solution for any potential outcome as my anxiety has considered them all. About alcoholism in their family, and they quote their mother, it's legal to drink alcohol at red lights and stop signs. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. And compulsive behaviors, uh, compulsive eating, having no control other than the food I eat, so I choose none. Actually, that wouldn't be compulsive eating. I, I uh, was trying to categorize that. Um, or maybe it is. I don't know. Put it under uh, eating disorder. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. <laughs> Filled out by a woman who calls herself, she's a dumpster fire, but please avert your eyes about her love addiction. Oh, random guy I met during my cam girl tenure? You're unsure of me? How dare you not love me without question? How dare you have healthy responses to my obvious red flags? (laughs) About her sex addiction, my vagina is my only worth. Thank you for sharing that. Snapshot from uh, her life. 
I've spent days alone in my apartment, eating, sleeping, and staring off into space. I have no reason to live most days, so I just languish. My dog is the only thing that gets me out of the house some days. I dread walking her every day because I'm paralyzed by fear of everything, but she is so happy to be outside. I have psychotic delusions about my neighbors. I call the police on them because I was convinced they were outside my windows flashing lights into my eye. I recently had retinal attachment surgery, and I'm convinced they all care that much about me. Nah, son, I'm pretty sure you're just having a break from all things reality. Maybe lay off the meth and sleep, you idiot. Oh yeah, you gotta sleep sometimes, duh. Any comments to make the podcast better? Just fuck right off, Paul. Done. Done. Before you've even finished your sentence, I am fucking myself. This is from the Back in Time uh, survey. And uh, Mariana, in answer to the question, if you could go back in time and say something to yourself, and what would you say? Uh, she writes, I wish my future self could come back into time at this moment right now and tell me how insignificant my fears are. I wish she could come to me today and tell me that I will succeed, I will accomplish the task at hand, and that the perfectionistic anxiety I feel right now is what's holding me back, not a perceived inadequacy or lack of understanding. She would explain to me that my anxiety is trying to protect me from the potential misery and stress of not being good enough, but that I don't need that protection, that I am good enough, and I'm smart and capable than I always have been, even and maybe especially in those moments that I felt my lowest, most miserable, and believed myself to be utterly stupid. If I know I want what my future self to say to me in this moment, how come it isn't enough for me to say it to myself now? I know on many levels that in a few years I will look back on today, on days like today and think what a waste it was to worry so much about what might happen, what might go wrong. I truly believe that making mistakes and failing are totally 100% part of learning and growing, that success is subjective and happiness doesn't nor shouldn't depend on whether I get A's on my papers and exams. Amen. Amen. And then to the question, take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. It can be someone you love or are angry with, or it can be yourself. And she writes, not sure how to word this, but I would take singing from birds and I would give it to myself. I've often felt small in my life, often without a voice, and I would just love to be able to sing, to make noise with my body freely and clearly, not caring who could hear me. I want to take up space. I want to feel the catharsis that would bring. My earliest dream as a child was to be a singer, but I squashed that dream and buried it really early on, believing that I could never ever be a good singer. Now I desperately wish I hadn't. I wish I had sung without shame, no matter what the outcome was, no matter what the goal was. Maybe I wouldn't struggle with feeling so small today as an adult if I had let myself sing as a child. Thank you for that. Very poetic. That's a fantasy I've always had is the ability to sing, and I've just never, ever felt comfortable. Even by myself, I'm, I'm embarrassed for me when I start to sing by myself. Most times. 
This is from the Loves survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Choose One, Choose One's Old, Choose One So I Don't Have To. That's all run together is, is one word. Um, and they write, I love when my friend's toddler thinks that something as simple as me pretending to be asleep and making snoring noises is the most fucking hilarious thing they've ever seen. <laughs> uh, what is it about kids that, and they just want you to do it over and over and over? And it goes from being really cute to, okay, we're driving to the orphanage. One last chance. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out <laughs> filled out by apathetic cunt. So you know this this one's brimming with self-confidence and a healthy environment. Uh, she identifies as straight, is in her twenties, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, never been sexually abused. But uh, she's been physically abused. Um, I've been called countless names by my parents. Bitch, my father's favorite word. Whore, dumb fuck, to name a few. One experience in particular comes to mind. I was about nine, struggling to learn a concept in math class, so I proceeded to ask my father, a math teacher, for help. As usual, this resulted in a flurry of screaming and shouting as I sat there wondering why I was such a, quote, dumb whore and, quote, bitch for not knowing how to do something so seemingly simple. Of course, I then became a perfectionist and the best at math in my class. Maybe the name-calling did help, uh, she writes. Fast forward 10 years later, and I'm still struggling to even pass a course in math, and my grades have been on the decline in everything. I now truly am a dumb whore. Guess it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Most of it was emotional abuse with a few experiences of physical abuse, one in particular being an experience I had with my mother who tried to drag me out of the house and tried to hit me with a chunk of metal in an effort to, quote, kill me because she was sick of me being depressed and starving myself. I believe that's that's the uh, chunk of metal remedy that a lot of psychiatrists are prescribing for depression. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yep, quite a few, which is why I'm so deeply confused. They provided me with everything, and I can see that they do in fact love me, yet I still can't help but feel a deep sense of resentment and hatred, especially towards my father. Who wouldn't feel resentment and hatred at somebody, I mean, imagine yourself telling a child the things that your father told you. When you're coming to him in a vulnerable state of asking for help. Darkest thoughts. And uh, she only filled out part of this survey, so I'm going to read what she filled out. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about how good it would be if my father would just die. I get filled with such hatred and anger at times, even when he just utters a simple hello or good morning and wish he was dead. At the same time, I know I would be devastated. I also want to run away, leave everyone, fuck for money, and just become a different person. It's not a life that should be glamorized, but I often fantasize about being used in that way. Darkest Secrets 
I often have a strong need and desire to get attention or validation from men, and so I've engaged with a string of people online. I love the thrill of talking to someone who could potentially be dangerous. Hearing their sexual fantasies about me or just helping those who are deeply broken and troubled. I went through a period of meeting random older men online, throwing myself into a potentially dangerous situation just for the thrill and fun of it. I also was passively suicidal and didn't care about my well-being. And then that's where her survey ends. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by Mountain Dog, and they write, I love swing and country dancing, Lindy swing, two-step, triple-step, and the touch of my partner's hand moving in sync to the music. Most of all, their smile throughout the dance. That's sweet. I don't know about you guys, but I find it really hard to dance sober. I've done it a few times and enjoyed it, but... So much easier when I was a drunken idiot. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself people pleaser extraordinaire. He's in his 50s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, identifies as 51% attracted to men, 49% to women. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was 14, a friend a year younger than me spent the night when my mom was away on a business trip. Dad was alcoholic and out of the house at that point. I had alcohol, which I shared with a friend. We got drunk, and he told me to suck his dick. I told him he had to suck mine first, which he did. We both had erections, but we had no idea how to perform oral sex. No climax occurred or anything. That shit haunted me for decades. Being thought of as a fag was the worst thing for a male in my family and in my little blue collar town, uh, little blue collar hometown. Here's the thing though that event was masturbation material for me for decades. The shame of liking it was the worst thing for me to deal with. Uh, he's not sure if he's been uh, emotionally or physically abused, uh, but. Uh, yeah, from the, the things he describes, uh, he definitely has been um, physically threatened by his dad, uh, had a mom with no boundaries who would talk to her about other people's sex lives when she was when he was a kid. Any positive experiences with abusers? I remember good times, family vacations, going to summer homes, etc. My dad died in 1984 with empty vodka bottles strewn around his house about six months after he and I had a falling out. I always thought I had the best mom in the world. Then one day I realized that her sharing gossip with me was inappropriate. Darkest thoughts. I still think about the time I was 14 and having that boy's hard dick in my mouth. I remember how it felt. It still turns me on. I frequently masturbate to twink porn. I think to recapture that moment, which was still which was my first sexual experience. Darkest secrets. I've only revealed the jacking off to gay porn to my therapist, but only once. I'm getting out of a 20-year marriage, and I don't think my wife knew that I did that a few times a month. 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. For the longest time, it was giving smooth twinks, hand jobs, or blow jobs. Recently, I was fascinated with double penetration of a woman after my wife revealed to me that she had been having an affair and wanted that. Her telling me that after years of very perfunctory sex kind of screwed with my head. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would have liked to reveal more about my sexual fantasies to my wife while we were together. I think that may have helped our lackluster sex life. I wasn't able to because I thought she would judge me. I wonder how many people listening feel that way and are in a marriage where it doesn't feel safe to reveal what their sexual fantasies are to their partner. I bet a lot. I bet a lot. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for a long-term relationship with a woman in which we can be completely honest about our fantasies, share them with each other, use them in sex, and celebrate them. Have you shared these things with others? No, but I am back in the dating scene for the first time in two decades, and I've decided that when I find Ms. Wright, I'm going to know it because she will not be freaked out by my fantasies. How do you feel after writing these things down? Generally better. Honesty really is the best policy. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't hide who you are from your partner. When you hide who you are, it only makes you go deeper into the shame and turns your secrets into obsessions that require even more feeding. When these fantasies live in your head, you can't be fully there for your partner. And if your partner can't understand your fantasies, judges them, or finds them repulsive, that may be the wrong person for you. Amen. A fucking man. Thank you for that, buddy. This is from the love survey filled out by I had no idea I'd ever be on seven meds. <laughs> and they write, I love when the mental illness happy hour features a guest, features a guest who makes a 90-minute interview seems seem like it was no more than 15 minutes. It's a rare, precious thing. Ah, thank you. That means a lot to me. I'm having a little trouble reading. It's uh, it's late, and my eyes start to get a little blurry when I'm uh, <coughs> excuse me when I'm tired. This is also from the love survey filled out by Dog Dark Ocean, and they write, When my dog runs into the room in the morning, jumps onto my bed, and asks me to lift up the covers so she can go under and snuggle. Oh, that's it's such a great one. And they always, for some reason, they always go way down to the end and do that snorting and, and pawing and like digging. Going for a walk when the weather is overcast and cloudy, which is rare in L.A. That feeling on a Friday night when the weekend is ahead of me and there's the possibility of having fun or resting. Those are nice and simple. Thank you for those. And we're going to end on a shame and secret survey, believe it or not. Is that a little risky? Is that a little too dark to end on? I don't give a fuck. This is filled out by Eliz, and she identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, Was says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And she writes, it has taken the last 12 years for me to call it what it was. And even then, 
I haven't said it aloud or spoken to anyone about it because I don't think anyone else would take it seriously. I'll give you the condensed version. I was 15 and with some friends who were a little older, got blackout drunk, which has happened twice in 28 years, and wound up going home with some guy, also older. I think his name was Alex. He had a mohawk and a leather jacket, and on the way home, I punched his friend in the face. I don't know why. It took us two hours to walk to his parents' house in the freezing cold, where I only have flashes of memories and did at the time. His bedroom in the attic, in the attic, his mattress on the floor. I lost my virginity to him, and all I can remember is the moment it hurt and the moment he said, I'm going to come, and my feeling like I was going to vomit. I woke up in the morning with no idea where I was. The first thing I saw was a huge dead spider floating in a glass of orange Lucozade on the floor by my head. I'm not sure what Lucozade is. I snuck downstairs, awkwardly said goodbye, and called my mom to pick me up. He said, see you next time, and I almost screamed. Instead, I ran down the street. I assumed this was what sex was. Painful, brief, shameful. I told it like a funny story for years, made it a shield so it couldn't hurt me, and never looked at it too deeply. I was raped. I was 15, in and out of consciousness, in no state to consent, and had no idea what was happening. For a very long time, I thought sex was just something that happened to you. I'm still ashamed because I've heard the attitudes of people around me. You can't just call bad drunk sex rape once you're sober. She shouldn't have been so drunk. What did she expect? All the victim-blaming bullshit that I know is bullshit, but I can't bear to hear. It's taken long enough to acknowledge what really happened. I don't want to try and justify it to other people. They've marked themselves as unsafe to share with now. It's a secret I'll keep, and that's fine. But I just needed it to get out somewhere. Paul, it happened. It wasn't my fault. I didn't deserve that. It's so funny that the topic at my support group was honesty. And like every survey that I've read, the through line is honesty and the freedom of claiming our truth. And sometimes it's so fucking hard and I just want to high five you on looking the truth in the face as hard as it is. Any positive experiences with abusers? Uh, she, she also had an abusive uh, ex and uh, she writes, both shitty boyfriends, wow, that was an understatement, started out charming and sweet, yada, 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 don't they always? I've always felt it was a failing on my part not seeing the obvious change from that to abusive. I'm always cautious when new people are nice to me. You know, one of the things that I loved that you shared is that you've identified people that aren't safe. And that's huge. You know, a, a lot of times I think people test out being vulnerable but they do it around people that aren't safe and it's in my experience it's a learning process and there are going to be some times when we share something and it falls on deaf ears or that person's uncomfortable or they say something stupid or rude to us but there are people out there that are that are safe to share things with darkest thoughts it sounds so stupid 
but it's taken me years to match up my sexual fantasies to what happened when I was 15. For a long time, I've been turned down by videos, stories, etc., where a woman is unconscious or asleep and raped or assaulted by a man or men who just uses her body. I know it's disgusting and assumed I was just a depraved freak, but once I started really looking at the way I lost my virginity, it all made sense, and I can't believe I didn't connect the dots sooner. My brain is taking what happened to me and trying to make it okay by making it a fantasy. Reframing it that way hasn't really helped with how I feel about it, so dot dot dot, thanks for nothing brain. But now it makes sense at least. It doesn't stop that horrible feeling as soon as I finish that I am contributing to this disgusting fetish and complicit in my dehumanization. Ugh. I'm disgusting. I would never act on any of this in real life and have never told a soul. I know it's wrong and I keep it to myself. Darkest Secrets, the above fantasies. It's so awkward when my husband says, tell me your fantasies in a sexy way and I just want to throw up because I'm so ashamed so I have to make up something stupid on the spot. You are so not disgusting. You are a human being. And you are one of many people experiencing what you're experiencing. And I, if you're listening, I, I know that may not make this any better or take away the, all the conflicted feelings you have. But you sound like a beautiful, sensitive soul. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. As before, I feel gross and ashamed. I've never said or typed the words before unless you count that weird, I've been looking at porn for three hours. How do I get this video? How did I get to this video of a guy fucking a raw chicken? (laughs) I hope it was cage-free. Otherwise, you're a monster. Is there anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my husband about my rape. Unfortunately, for all of his well-meaning feminism, he misses all the nuance and won't just listen. He'd think I was making a mountain out of a molehill. See all of this magical thinking? I sure am a healthy and well-adjusted person. Also, I'm British, so please read appropriately for sarcasm, which is my first language. That's such an an important situation that you highlighted there is that you don't feel safe, you know, that that he's a well-meaning feminist, yet he's not safe because he misses the nuance. And I think there are so many people who fall into that category. And I, I don't know what the answer is. I guess just keep talking about it. You know, I continue to try to expand my mind and to learn you know what it's like to be other people what their experiences are like and uh i suppose i know that i thought you know i was emotionally mature and sensitive and all those other things that i was shocked to find out i actually was very far away from and it's been it's a big learning curve, especially if you're if you're raised male and white and um, with economic privilege. It can be you think you think you're really putting yourself in other people's shoes, uh, 
But I, you know, I've been doing this podcast for 10 years, 11 years, and I'll still hear somebody share something that'll, that'll make me realize, oh, I, I still do not understand the scope and the depth of what it is they feel. And I'm sure there's things that I've experienced, you know, um, shit that I experienced in childhood that some well-meaning person does not fucking get and minimizes my experience. What, if anything, do you wish for? To not hate myself, which seems like a big ask. To be able, you are selfish. At your core, you are selfish. Uh, To be able to recognize something positive about myself that I guess other people must see sometimes. To be able to get out of my anxiety brain every once in a while. To be heard and understood instead of being called too sensitive for once. Oh, and world peace. You know, people that... My least favorite people in the world are people that throw around the phrase, you're too sensitive. It's such a fucking shirk. Shirking of responsibility. Oh, it's your problem. And not that there aren't people who are you know, drainingly sensitive. But they're very fucking few and far between. And I think the world is a lot more populated with insensitive people with no desire to grow and see their part in things. Have you shared these things with others? Nope. People think I am ridiculous enough as it is. Well, I hope you find a support group because you will find that you are not ridiculous and that you're a sensitive person living in an insensitive world and you need some support and you deserve to feel that love. You really do. Because it's a fucking great feeling when you feel it. I just came from feeling it at my meeting. (laughs) It's amazing, this group of guys at this meeting. It, it, and, and, you know, probably a third of these guys have been in prison. You know, they were sharing tonight about, you know, being on the, on the bus on their way to prison with a weapon concealed in their ass. And these guys today, they cry, they get vulnerable. It's, it's fucking amazing seeing somebody's, toxic masculinity fall away and see the guy with the tattoos on his face he's just he's just scared just like I am that's the first thing they should teach us in kindergarten is hey we're all scared (laughs) you're never going to do anything perfectly Just give it a good shot and try to be nice to yourself. (laughs) And everything else is gravy. Anyway, I I hope you got something out of our episode today. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.